may be seated. I'm going to have you stand back up just a second. just going to let you know that in advance. But in any case, um, we are, because today is July 4th weekend, um, I wanted to take a time out from our current series where we're traveling through the New Testament, New Testament survey, and just talk a little bit about America, talk about our country, talk about the significance of the scriptures relating to that. And so uh, you'll afford me that um, privilege of, of taking that time out today. Um, and so I want to uh, dive into the subject of deception of the nation, the deception of the nation. And so, um, I mean, from my personal opinion, it seems to me that an enormous number of Americans these days are being deceived. And I would add that an enormous number of Christian Americans these days are being deceived as well. The devil is the author of lies. Uh, the devil is good at spinning a story, taking a thread of truth and weaving it and spinning it with lies and then deceiving people. And that's basically what I feel like is taking place in our country today. And so that's what I want to talk about is the deception that's taking place in our nation. Um, our text for today comes from 1 Kings chapter 22. Uh, we're going to read verses 19 through 23. Let me tell you just a little bit about this uh, particular chapter and verse here. Um, there are two kings in this chapter. One is a bad king, a wicked king by the name of Ahab, um, and the other king is the king of the southern territory, the southern kingdom of Judah, and his name is Jehoshaphat. We've got a map for you, and we're going to put that map up on the screen, and you can see the big blue blob um, at the top is the kingdom of Israel, and the orangish blob on the bottom is the kingdom of Judah. So this is after King Solomon has died. And the kingdom of, of Israel, which was one time united, has now split between the north and the south. The northern kingdom being Israel, and that is where Ahab is the king of. And then the southern kingdom being the kingdom of Judah, and that is Jehoshaphat, the good king in this story, uh, in which he is the king of. So let's stand and read together from 1 Kings chapter 22. We'll begin at verse 19 through 23. 1 Kings chapter 22, we'll begin at verse 19. Micaiah continued, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the host of heaven standing around him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. In verse 23, so now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to move toward those verses, but I want to jump back earlier in the verse, 1 Kings chapter 22. We're going to back a little bit earlier and work our way toward this, because what we just read is what the prophet Micaiah says to the wicked king Ahab in his presence. He gets called into his presence, and so this is what he has to say. And so let's work our way toward that. Skip back to verse 5, 1 Kings 22, verse 5. Uh, Jehoshaphat, the good king, is responding to Ahab's request, and he says, but first, let us seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel, verse 6, brought together the prophets, about 400 of them, and asked, Shall I go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? 
Now what's happening here is Ahab, the wicked king of the north, has called the good king of the south, Jehoshaphat, and he said, hey, let's go to war together against this particular town in my territory of Israel called Ramoth-Gilead. It's been occupied by outsiders. It's full of people who are, who are causing me disruption and disturbance. And so why don't you join me in this battle? And so Jehoshaphat is saying, hey, I'm not stupid. Let's ask God whether or not this is something we should do. I appreciate you, wicked King Ahab, making this request of me and my troops, but let's find out what God thinks about this. And so um, so Ahab says, okay, well, that's fine. Let's do that. Uh, We'll go gather together my prophets, Ahab's prophets, 400 of them, and see what they have to say. And so King Jehoshaphat says, well, I understand that these 400 prophets are on your payroll. I understand that these 400 prophets that you have are basically people who are just yes men, that they'll tell you whatever you want to hear, Ahab. They'll say whatever your itching ears desire. And so Jehoshaphat Jehoshaphat responds, verse 7, um, he says to Ahab, is there not a prophet, a true prophet, one who will say the truth, uh, one who will say what you don't necessarily want to hear um, of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? And so Ahab says, yes, verse 8, there is this one guy through whom we can inquire, but I hate him because, here's why, he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad stuff. Well, that's because you're a bad king, Ahab, but that's nonetheless here nor there. So he is Micaiah, son of Imla. And so they summon Micaiah, and when he arrives, verse 15, here's what Micaiah has to say. So good king Jehoshaphat gets works the situation out so that a true prophet, one who will tell the truth, comes forward and he stands before these two kings and here's what Micaiah has to say. Verse 15, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth-Gilead or shall we refrain? Attack and be victorious, Micaiah answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Now we know in the next verse that Micaiah is just being ornery. He's being sarcastic. He's not literally telling him, hey, yeah, go ahead and do this. What he's really saying is, Oh, sure. Go ahead. Go up there to Ramoth Gilead. Attack them. It'll be grand. Right? That's really what he's saying. Look at verse 16 because look at how Ahab responds to him. He says, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing uh, but the truth in the name of the Lord? And so then Micaiah gives him the real nitty gritty. Verse 17. He says to him, You wanted to hear the truth? I'll tell you the truth. Here it is. I saw all of Israel, that is, he saw Israel in a vision, all of Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. Um, Ahab is the king of the northern territory, so he is considered the shepherd of Israel. And so Micaiah says, I saw all of your people, all the sheep of Israel, the northern territory, I saw all of them scattered on the hillside in my vision without a shepherd, that is, without you, Ahab. So he's predicting here Ahab's impending death. That's what he's doing. Verse uh, 8, verse 17, I think I just read that. Um, Verse 18, so Ahab responds, See, didn't I tell you he never prophesies anything good about me? Uh, So that's kind of, just so you know how the story wraps up, sure enough, just as Micaiah had predicted was going to happen, as he had saw in his vision was going to happen, Ahab ends up going to Ramoth-Gilead against the advice of Micaiah. And at Ramoth-Gilead, Ahab is uh, killed. He is um, killed in battle. And so 
Having said all that, there's the story. All of the story, it reminds me of much of what's happening in our country today. And America is filled with professors and politicians and media personalities and people of influence who are telling the American public what they want to hear. They are taking threads of truth, they are twisting it with lies, and they are spinning the story to lead us towards societal suicide. That's what's taking place in our country today. And you can feel that. You can see that in the direction of the coming generations that we're moving towards societal suicide. They tweak the truth just enough to ensnare people, to convince people, to get people to stick with them, to hang in there. And yet, the reckless behavior that they are endorsing individually and at a national level is leading us as a society towards societal suicide. So what I'd like to do today is I'd like to expose three of the lies that Ahab's prophets are coming in and sharing with, uh, the, with, the, pop, with the population, with the people. And so uh, the first of those lies is, number one, I'm going to give you three of them here. Number one is that it's okay to have a society where there are no absolute standards of right and wrong. That it's okay to have a society where there are no absolute standards of right and wrong. That's lie number one. Um, in other words, that we can, li- we can, have an, we can live and, and, and flourish as a society apart from any absolute standards, apart from any standards of morality in our society, that we can just live and flourish and all get along and everything goes hunky-dory, and yet uh, we don't have any standards uh, for our society and how we're to conduct our lives. I love what Harry Truman said. He said, I wonder how far Moses would have gotten if he had taken an opinion poll in Egypt. Think about that. Harry Truman, pretty sharp guy. He said, I wonder how far uh, Moses would have gotten if he had taken an opinion poll in Egypt. You know, our courts have removed all absolute definitions of right and wrong when it comes to morality and decency and purity. For example... Our courts tell us that no one can absolutely define pornography as wrong, therefore we cannot outlaw it. And so because of this, what, what could only be gotten at one time in the back dark room of some, uh, some dusty bar can now be gotten on the bookshelves, in the bookstores, and on TV, and in our magazines, and in, on the computers. Um, on all of this is considered, considered protected free speech protected free speech well let me tell you something our founding fathers never intended this kind of filth to be considered protected speech never it was never in their mind what they were thinking of when they talked about free speech it ought to be outlawed friends in every city in america and on every website in america because that honors god it ought to be outlawed in every county in america and on every tv channel in america But it's not happening because Ahab's prophets have got the courts convinced and the American public convinced that there are no absolute standards of right or wrong. Who can say what's right? Who can say what's wrong? They've got the American public convinced that we can't do that. What's even more horrific is that they've got our society convinced that the Bible is a prehistoric book. That if we were to follow the teachings of the Bible, that we would become a backward society, that we would become a restrictive society, that we would become an unliberated society, an intolerant society, a society that we wouldn't want to have created if we were to follow what's in the Bible. The truth is that any society that is not based on the 
Christian values of the, of the scriptures is destined without exception to decline, to decay, to self-destruction. Give it enough time. And all through human history, that is exactly what has happened to nations that have uh, given into um, this idea that we can't tell what's right or what's wrong. Why number two is that it's okay to have a society where God is absent from our educational systems, that God is absent from our political systems, that God is absent from every area of our society. And that it's okay, in other words, to have an utterly secular society. And so we've got Christians defending the idea that we have to have God out of the public arena. Lately, the EU has been in the news, and the people of Britain have wised up and said, hey, look, no more. We want out of this. This is a purely secular institution, the European Union, and so they, it's been a destructive union. And why is the EU continuing down the path of destruction that it's on right now? Why is it heading towards societal suicide? Why is it in such big trouble? Well, back in 2004, when the constitution of the EU was being formed, uh, somebody came forward and said, hey, look, I would like to have a blurb, just a blurb, put in there about the Christian heritage of Europe about how the church was a part of the formation of Europe and the civil, bringing it in, out of the uh, barbarian age and towards civilization and, the, and Christian, its Christian heritage, and a huge fight broke out. This is back in 2004 at the writing of the EU Constitution. And uh, one of the leaders of France at that time said, Europeans believe in a purely secular political system where religion does not play any important role. Well, how's that working out for you? right? How's that working out for them? Not too well. Things are falling apart. And you know why? It's because they tried to drive God out of every area of society. In the USSR, they tried to drive God out of every area of human society. During the French Revolution, they tried to drive God out of every area of human society. In Nazi Germany, they tried to drive God out of every area of human society. And in every single case, it led to or to societal decline, societal suicide. That's what the folks in Britain have found out and the rest of the folks in the EU are finding out is that removing God from society is like pulling the pin on a grenade and just throwing it out there in culture. And what happens is uh, things begin to fall apart and it doesn't end well. In his book in 2001, an author by the name of Pat Buchanan, some of you may remember him, he also ran for president and has been a political figure for much of his life, wrote a book called Death of the West. Here's what he had to say in that book, and I quote, A European-style de-Christianization of America is the goal of any liberal, and they are succeeding. A de-Christianization of America is the goal, he said, of any liberal, and 2001 he said this, and they are succeeding. And we are uh, experiencing, reaping the fruits of that today. We as Americans don't just live, don't just have a Christian heritage, though. It's more than that. We are conceived, rather, America was conceived in a Christian womb. The very soul of America was conceived by Christian architects, people like the Puritans, people like the Pilgrims. They were children of the Great Awakening. There was Benjamin Franklin, who many people have said, oh, he didn't believe in God, he was a deist, he wasn't a Christian. Well, maybe he wasn't a Christian, but it was Benjamin Franklin who called the Constitutional Congress to prayer when things came to a stalemate and said, folks, we need to take a time out and turn toward the Almighty and ask God for his help 
and presiding over the writing of this Constitution. Our whole court system, friends, is based on the jurisprudence of the Bible. And every college and every university established in America before 1776 was established by Christians to train Christians, to train Christian leaders, pastors, who were going to go out and educate the people. That's Harvard, that's Princeton, that's Yale, that's Dartmouth, that's William and Mary, many more. Every one of them founded for the purpose of training pastors and Christian leaders. How silly, what a grotesque distortion of American history suggests that God and Christianity were not at the founding of this great nation. Listen to this quote from a Harvard student rules and precepts. It was one of the guiding documents at the founding of the school dated to 1646. It says, Everyone shall consider the main end of his life or purpose of his studies and studies at Harvard to know God and Jesus Christ. That was the on, in the manual handed out to the students when they showed up on campus that the main end of their life is to know God and Jesus Christ. And it goes on to say, everyone shall so exercise himself, this is with a call to the, to the students at Harvard, to in reading the scriptures two times a day, that he shall be ready to give an account of his proficiency therein upon graduation. This is how Harvard got started. It had a foundation on Christ. It had a foundation on biblical Christianity. Public education in America was started the same way. For a hundred years, the backbone of public education in America was the McGuffey Reader, which is nothing more than the Bible taken and put in various levels of educational form for elementary school students to learn the Bible. But you know, we don't have to go back a hundred years. I spent this past week up at my parents' house in Delaware. My parents were both public educators. My mom was a third grade teacher for 30 plus years. My dad was an elementary school principal for 30 so years. And my mom said, I can remember in my classroom, so this is within our memory of our lifetime, in class, sharing scripture with students and having them memorize Bible verses within our generation, our own generation, in our own memory of how we were raised. She says she remembers that. That happened in my parents' lifetime, in our lifetime. But the last 40 years, the lying prophets in the film industry and in the courts and in our universities and in our legislature and in every level of our media, there has been an unapologetic attempt, as Pat Buchanan said, to de-Christianize America, to run God out of public discourse and public education and our legislative processes, to push God out of all of that. Um, if a Klingon, anybody watch Star Trek? Guys with the lumpy heads. If a Klingon were to come to our planet and were to watch our TV shows and was, were to listen to the radio and go to a ball game and participate in American life, if a Klingon were to sit in our university lectures and was to attend our popular sporting events at the end of a month, they would not even realize that the concept of God existed in our society unless they happened to attend a church somewhere on a Sunday morning. Friends, it is a lie for us to believe that a society so conceived without God in it, to quote Abraham Lincoln, who said that a society, any society so conceived can long endure. That is a society without God and without a biblical foundation. Third lie that's being pushed on our American public, the Ahab's prophets are out there telling us, our society can, that our society can maintain morality and civic order devoid of inward religious conviction. That is, that the government 
can do the job that the church has historically done of creating and sustaining a national morality through legislation and through regulation. We're driving down the road on our way back down here. You know how when you're driving through Atlanta and they put those big uh, things that say, you know, next 18 miles, 19 minutes, that kind of thing? Well, on one of the signs, and we're driving through the Washington, D.C. area, it said something about uh, hot dogs, baseball, and arriving sober. And I thought, okay, that's our government attempting to put into the hearts of people how we're supposed to behave. They're trying to legislate how we're supposed to behave. Friends, only the Bible, only the Bible can change the hearts of people. Only, only God working through uh, the morality of biblical Christianity can change the hearts of people, not some legislator. In other words, it's the belief that the government can write enough laws, can pass enough rules, can put enough punishments in place, can hire enough law enforcement agents, and that by doing all those things that the government can maintain the moral behavior of the people of his country. That's why our government is growing so rapidly right now, because the moral fabric of our nation is crumbling. We need more government. We need more laws. We need more law enforcement agents because people are not governing themselves anymore. Their hearts are given to whatever their lusts, whatever their passions are dictating for them to do. That's why we're seeing an explosion of government. There's a need for more government because the people are no longer restrained by the inward religious conviction. Amen? All right. Just telling you what's going on out there. Arthur Levitt, who's the former chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, speaking about corporate abuses, said this, What we have is an erosion of corporate ethics. No matter how many rules the SEC passes, people without ethics will still find a way to get around them, end of quote. In other words, the government can write so many laws, and it has, can write so many laws and make things so tight that a dishonest person cannot possibly find a way to abuse them, but what he's saying is, hey, friends, the heart of people is wayward, and they will find a way around those laws. Um, uh, the idea that our government and our culture want us to believe that inner religious conviction is unnecessary in society, that the government can take the role, can legislate, can impunate, bring punitive responses, all of this, and keep the society together is a lie. The fact is, right now already, there are so many rules and regulations in this country that you can hardly sneeze without violating some federal law that's out there. And yet the jails are filled to overflowing in our country, and corporate fraud is everywhere you look. This philosophy, this approach to governing the masses is not working. And the reason it's not working is because of what Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 17 and verse 6 or verse 9. He said, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. The reason this is not working is because the heart of people is fallen. It's because the heart of people is beyond cure, as Jeremiah said. No amount of external rules. No amount of external regulations are going to fix the problem or much less control the behaviors of people. The founders of our country understood this. Listen to what John Adams, the president, second president of our country, had to say about the governing of the hearts of the people of this land. He said, and I quote, No government, no government can contend with human passions that are unbridled by morality and religion. In other words, when you run morality out, when you run biblical Christianity out of the hearts of people, when they're no longer tied to some sort of inward religious conviction, no government can deal with that kind of a mass of people. He went on to say, 
Our Constitution was made for a moral and a religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the governing of any other kind of people. Our America is founded on giving liberty to people, and when you give people liberty, then they have to have some way to govern their own behaviors. Or the government has to come in and grow and grow and grow to try and deal with what the inward religious conviction that is not there, that's absent. And so that's what Adams is pointing to here, that our Constitution, the liberty that it gives people, not to live under tyranny, but to live free, to govern their own lives, is ba- is, is, it won't work unless it has moral and religious fabric tied to it. The French Revolution, friends, was in full swing when this country was being shaped. And the ideas of equality and liberty, those ideas were secular and they were very popular uh, on the other side of the pond. But our founding fathers rejected that and instead said, we are going to build our society on a religious foundation, a foundation of the Bible, a foundation that is uh, that society is not held together by the will of a king, but that rather is held together held together by the Holy Spirit stirring and working in the hearts of people, an inward religious conviction. In other words, we want a culture that is founded on in God we trust, not in our constitution we trust, not in our police force do we trust, not in our anything else institution do we trust, but in God we trust because God places that inward religious conviction on the inside of the hearts of people so that people are able to govern themselves. Follow me? Okay, all right. Now, if we ever hope to preserve and revitalize this nation, we must fight those who would tell us that we can build a moral society from the outside in. We must rather listen to the words of John Adams who said, No government can contend with human passions that are unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It won't work, in other words, for any other kind of people. You can't give people this amount of liberty, this amount of freedom, if they're not able to govern themselves. So those are just some of the lies, but those are some of the biggies that are being pushed out there by Ahab's prophets on the people of our country. And so they want us to believe that, number one, that it's okay to have a society where there are no absolute standards of right and wrong. Number two, that it's okay and better to have a society that God, where God is absent from every area of that society. And number three, that it's okay to have a society where we try to maintain morality by outward legislation instead of through inward religious conviction. That essentially the government can take and sustain our national morality. You know, the scary thing is that Ahab's liars are out there, and they're succeeding. They're succeeding. Uh, They're duping the American public. Uh, And like I said before, I even believe that many Christians these days, Christian Americans, are even buying into this whole concept that the government can accomplish all these things and that we're better off to have God out of the public sphere. Now, all that brings us to our most important question, which is what difference does all this make to my life? Say, Gordon, I hear what you're saying, but I mean, what am I supposed to do about it? Well, I got four quick suggestions for you, okay? Four suggestions. Here's what you can do about it. Number one, lead as many people as possible to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lead as many people as possible to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5, he said, Paul, he said, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. An evangelist is somebody who's going out telling people about Jesus everywhere they go, everything that they do. Every time they have contact with people, they're in some way or another sharing Christ with those people. He says, you go do that task. You say, well, how does that help America? Well, 
It helps America because people who have been born again, people who have become Christians, have discernment. They can see the difference between a lie and a truth. People who have been born again study the Word of God. People who have been born again discover the truth that's in God's Word. People who are born again, who are armed with the truth, won't be taken in by liars like Ahab's prophet. Plus, only Jesus Christ, and I've said this before here, and I'll say it again, and I'll probably say it again and again. Only Jesus Christ has the capacity to change the mass number of hearts of people. Only Jesus can do that. I mean, there's a heart change that's needed in our country. Uh, and it's needed not just a trickle here and a trickle there, but in the mass number of hearts of people. And only Jesus, a true revival in our country, can bring about that kind of change in the direction of the hearts of people. Number two, a second thing that we can do to help America is to train up our children in the knowledge of God, to train up our children in the knowledge of God. Friends, a child who has been taught and immersed in the word of God is far less likely to be led astray by Ahab's prophets than a child who is not immersed in the word of God. This is the job of parents. This is the job of grandparents. This is the job of our church to tag team with you, to double team your children with you, to teach them God's word, the knowledge of God's word, so that they won't be led astray when the lies start trickling their way. Number three, the third thing we can do is to keep declaring biblical truth in American society. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, this is Paul telling Timothy, he's about ready to, he's in chains, he's about ready to be executed, and so he's sending this letter to Timothy with some instructions on what Timothy's supposed to do. Timothy's going to take over Paul's place, and one of the things he tells him is to preach the word. He says, be prepared in season and out of season to preach the word, Timothy. Tell people about the gospel. Tell people about uh, the Bible. And so what's the greatest enemy of a lie? Well, the truth is the greatest enemy of a lie, which means as the Lord's church, the greatest service that we can perform for America is to preach the truth. It's to teach the truth to people. It's to stand firm on the truth. It's to not waver when it comes to issues of principle. No compromising. Now, we can be kind about that. We can be compassionate about that. Uh, We can be patient with people as they absorb that truth. But still, we have to tell people the truth. And this is what Paul told Timothy to go do. And remember, the society that Timothy was preaching in was a neo-Greek culture that was full of pantheon of gods. It was pluralistic as pluralistic gets. Everybody had their own thoughts and their own ideas about, uh, about morality and about decency and about the purpose in life. And into that culture, which was much more farther progressed than ours is, Paul said, go in there. Be unapologetic. Be nice about it. Be kind about it. But you preach the word. Tell people the truth. And finally, number four, number four, what can we do to help America? Is that the church can repent. The church can repent. Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14 is where uh, Solomon is dedicating the temple to the Lord. He's just completed the temple. His father had gotten all the materials together. David had passed on. And one of the first things that Solomon does is he builds this house for God there in Jerusalem, the temple. And so he's dedicating the temple to the Lord. And so they've had all this pomp and circumstance all through the day. And then all the people had moved out. And Solomon goes into the temple by himself and he's awaiting God's presence to come into the temple. And so God's presence finally, as he and Solomon are there alone, comes and fills the temple. And God says to um, Solomon, he giving him some advice on, hey, leading this nation. Solomon's the new king. He says, hey, look, you want to you want to lead this nation? I'm going to give you some thoughts, some ideas on how you ought to do that. And he says, 
if my people, God's people, not the folks out there, but the folks in here, God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear, hear, their, voice, hear their call from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. So what God anticipates here in his advice to the leader of the nation is, there's going to come time, Solomon, in your leadership when this nation is going to go astray. And here's how that gets back right again. He said the people of God need to turn to the Lord, need to petition the Lord for healing of the land, but most importantly is that they need to turn from their wicked ways. Friends, there needs to be a difference between how you live and how your neighbor lives who's not in church this morning. There needs to be a difference in the kind of stuff that comes through on your TV and the kind of stuff that comes through on your computer and the kind of stuff and behaviors that are happening next door. There needs to be a distinct difference in the quality of your life and the values in which you raise your children and the way that you live and the behaviors that you do between you and those that don't claim Christ. And if there's not a difference, then there needs to be a turning from our wicked ways. And God says, hey, look, you do that, and here's what I'll do. I'll forgive your sins, and I'll heal your land. So the onus is really on us. We want America to take a new course and for revival to come and for Jesus to infect the hearts of a mass number of people. Friends, that's going to start right here. It starts in your home. It starts in your heart. Let's pray together. Most gracious Lord, we thank you for a chance to come here today to hear your truth declared over our lives, to be challenged to live different, to be challenged to adopt your way of living, Lord, because we know that it's right and that it honors you. Lord, we pray for our country. We pray for our leaders. We pray for people in positions of influence who are being led by lies. Threads of truth that have been twisted by the author of lies. Lord, we pray that they would wake up. We pray that the truth would be declared. But again, Lord, before any of that can happen, there need to be changes in our households. There need to be changes in our hearts. Lord, you're always calling your people back to yourself. In these quiet moments of communion today, as we remember your broken body and your shed blood, Lord, if there's some returning that needs to be done, if there's some repenting that needs to be done, we ask, Lord, that you would give us the courage and the clarity speak those words to you, to acknowledge that our ways haven't been your ways, and to declare a new day.